welcome. You are listening to the Theology Mill from Whitfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle, and I work here at Whitfinstock. Um, I'm also the host of this podcast, which, as you know, consists of interviews with some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you hear on the podcast, come stop by our website at whipfinstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock, S-T-O-C-K dot com. So in this standalone episode, I get to interview um, Dr. Prussian Renee Burroughs. Uh, Dr. Burroughs earned her doctorate at Duke Divinity School and currently teaches at the Wake Forest University School of Divinity. And she's also a fellow of the Center for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability there at Wake Forest. And most important to us, she's the author of a recent book entitled Creation, Slavery, and Liberation, Paul's Letter to Rome in the Face of Imperial and Industrial Agriculture. Um, She's also the editor of Practicing with Paul, Reflections on Paul, and the Practices of Ministry in Honor of Susan G. Eastman. And both of those books were published with us at Cascade. So without further ado, friends, let's head over to the interview. Well, I am here with Dr. Prussian Burroughs, um, who uh, has published a couple of books with us, one that she edited, uh, which is, what is that? It's called uh, Practicing with Paul. Is that right? That's right. And then she recently published um, Creations, uh, Slavery and Liberation on Romans, which is really, I got the chance to read a few chapters from it in preparation for the interview. It was really, really fascinating stuff. Um, and we are sharing a drink. Uh, where, by the way, where are you located? I'm in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Okay. No, okay. We've had a few North Carolina, North Carolinians. That's right. Okay. Wow. I can't believe I got that. Right. Um, so yeah, so we are sharing a drink from Oregon to North Carolina. Um, I have a couple drinks. Um, we're recording this during Lent, so I'm very, you know, anti- not deliberately, but accidentally being sort of anti-Lenten with my drinking this morning. But So I have a coffee and an orange juice. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a happy glutton this morning. Um, but what, yeah, what are you drinking? Um, well, I have water and a, nice. a chai, like a chai latte. Oh, nice. Lovely. Lovely. Nice. Very cool. Okay. So tell me, um, tell me a bit about your earlier, kind of the early years of your theological journey and how you found yourself at Duke Divinity? All right. Well, I have to kind of go far back, but um, I became a a follower of Christ in high school through um, friendships with with people who were Christians. And um, during that time and for quite a few years after that, I was participating in a segment of Christianity that we would, or that I would today call pretty narrowly evangelical and fundamentalist. And, um, I loved, I loved my, my church, my church friends. Um, I was always wanting to know more and was willing to ask hard questions. And when I did a master's degree in linguistics, I started to recognize that knowledge, theological knowledge, as well as even scientific knowledge was, was shaped by our perspectives, at least to some degree, our subjectivity, and that um, as humans, there's no way for us to remove ourselves 
from the process of discovery and interpretation. Mm. Um, and this is not to say that there's not truth, um, but that I think for, for me, I came to realize we humans can't fully know it and translate it and capture it and control it. Um, so when I started applying this to understanding the Bible, I began realizing that things weren't as clearly defined as I once thought and was taught um, by my Christian tradition. Um, I came to realize that the Bible didn't just drop out of heaven, mm-hmm. written from start to finish in English and um, ready for us to just memorize and apply. Um, I started realizing that God led many different people in various times and locations to use their minds and their experiences of God to narrate their their view of God and God's world, um, and that God continues to guide us through that process of knowing God through our interpretive faculties. So along with this growing sense um, that I shouldn't just approach the Bible as if it were this scientific treatise with these clearly defined fundamentals, um, one might say, I began realizing, began sort of realizing that faithful Christians throughout the ages had also been holding pretty different views of scripture and theology, and that my narrower Christian tradition um, was, yeah, was, was narrower than it needed to be. So I started to gain a greater um, sense of freedom to move towards a broader evangelicalism. And in, in this process, be- became aware of Duke Divinity School and particularly the work of Richard Hayes. And um, at the time when I applied for a master's degree, um, MTS at Duke, I knew I wanted to go on for doctoral work in New Testament and probably Paul. And Richard Hayes's presence at Duke Divinity was like the big lure. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's kind of what, what led me there. Um, Yeah. So I started MTS student, but then turned MDiv and then a few years did um, entered again as a THD student. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Hayes is a good reason to go anywhere probably. Um, (laughs) Yeah. One of my, like a follow-up question, I guess would be um, as you're, as you're, uh, as you sort of transition from what you described as like a narrow evangelicalism to kind of a broader um, evangelicalism, did that did that change your your ideas about sort of the inspiration of scripture? Like, were, were those um, kind of shaped anew in any ways? Yeah, it took a very long time, and honestly, I still wrestle with with that. And um, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's very challenging to work through because. Um, when I'm thinking through it rationally and not just reacting emotionally, I, I think, you know, in many ways, I, I placed my faith in the Bible and a particular interpretation of the Bible hmm. rather than the living God who stood beyond the Bible. Um, 
mm-hmm. and yet would be communicated through that the scriptures as well. But um, and so that process of developing a different hermeneutic of seeing scripture in a different way, it um, it often brought with it a sense of guilt because mm-hmm. it could easily feel like I was turning my back on God because I was turning my back on certain fundamental beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, I've probably followed a similar trajectory. Um, and yeah, it is, it is, you sort of, ex- you sort of exposing yourself. Like it's, it can be uh, kind of a fearsome thing. So that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you went to you went to Duke uh, primarily because you wanted to study with Richard Hayes. But what was your what was your experience like at the Div School there? Uh, how did it sort of shape you as a theologian and as a person? Um, Where I mean, obviously, you said you went there for Richard Hayes. Were there other kind of faculty or uh, peers, other students who really left a deep impression on you? Mm-hmm. Well. Um... So like I've already kind of indicated, the, the the time at Duke, definitely, I mean, it was exciting and very good, but there was also um, some unsettling aspects to it. You know, I, as seminarians, we face the complexities and uncertainties involved in theological knowledge. And then with that, also the horrifying histories mm-hmm. that... Christians and the church have been involved in the failures of God's people to live as God calls us to live um, now and in the past, you know, and all of that um, is, is part of what one wrestles with through seminary. And, um, and so it, it pressed me to critique, critique my faith, my practice, um, and really my whole life. So, um, it, you know, so that was, that was, you know, it was a challenge. Uh, along with that, though, as a master's student who was, you know, trying to pursue do- further doctoral work, you know, and, and the competitive competitiveness of that, I had to face my inadequacies and push through them and um, to the best of my ability to shore those, those inadequacies up. And, and this was also very difficult, um, grueling work and humbling, humiliating sometimes work. Um, and it, it probably really wasn't until my doctoral years that I developed close relationships with my professors. Um, and, and started to see, that they too had, had had experiences of, of inadequacy and of, of feeling mm-hmm. like they didn't know enough and those sorts of things. Um, and, and definitely my relationships with other doctoral students allowed me to see that my peers struggled with those same feelings. Um, yeah. And, and just the, the, the blessing of being able to walk with peers as we all wrestled with, our faith and the history of the church and all of that. It was um, a really beautiful time. Yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate what you said about 
uh, sort of the, like those feelings of inadequacy. I think one thing I've found, I've, I've done like a handful of written interviews with different theologians and biblical scholars uh, for our Whip and Sock blog, where I'm I'm essentially just asking them sort of very short uh, questions about writing, what it's like to write and publish in, in the Theological Academy. And it seems like the one, I feel like the biggest like learning point I've gleaned from all that is that it's almost kind of universal to have an experience of imposter syndrome. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> even people who have published a ton of books still, uh, still wrestle with that. So I, for some reason, it's helpful to know that people yeah. you really admire and you respect their work, you know, also, you know, have the same, the same struggles. That's helpful for some reason. Did you, but what, one of my questions is um, that sort of uh, test of your own faith um or or having your sort of your uh, the what you described as the kind of the narrow version of, of faith um that you sort of grew up in sort of having that challenged did did that i mean was that fruitful for you in the end like did it kind of open on to uh mm-hmm. like a positive expression of your faith in the end yeah i think you know and i think that's that's something that's still happening, but, um, but yes. And, and, you know, I completely uh, recognized the possibility that some turn their backs on, on their faith and um, that that very well could have, have happened um, in my, in my life, in my journey. Um, But uh i guess i would just say by god's grace i um continue to have a sense that that god is real and with me um and then also through god's grace i've been given so many wonderful friends who mm-hmm. who love and accept me even in the midst of my doubts even in the midst of my selfishness and sin and um and that that in and of itself displays to me god and and god's love mm-hmm. so um yeah. yeah but you know and i think that um to get to another aspect of what your question was originally was um you know i think seeing the the particular professors at duke who are you know top-notch theologians and biblical scholars, pra- practitioners, um, practical theologians? You know that many of them were authentically practicing Christian mm-hmm. faith, and that even as they themselves were raising really challenging questions they continued to follow Christ. And that gave me a lot of confidence and a sense of freedom to do likewise. Uh, And, and so like some of the people I would especially highlight were again, Richard Hayes, Warren Smith, Susan Eastman, Ellen Davis, Stanley Hauerwas, Douglas Campbell, um, Norman Wurzba and Michael Gorman. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, 
E.P. Sanders was another person who was was really influential on my thinking, but not necessarily, you know, the faith sort of formation wise. But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and and especially my doctoral committee and Susan Eastman was my advisor. And then um, Ellen, Douglas and Norman were on my committee. And, you know, they've continued to. Just give me support and nurturing through through the years and and mm-hmm. the, yeah so i think yeah. i think that professors themselves have a lot of power to mm-hmm. influence their students um, and their students faith in this process yeah absolutely yeah no for sure yeah i think i think like it's so um like reassuring in a way when your professors who are brilliant are also seem like good people you know and like have like a really living vibrant uh faith like that for some reason that at least for me like in my experience when i've had professors like that 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 is really sort of like something i hold on to as like a source of hope and uh yeah Mm -hmm. just something that like like sort of helps you hold on to the faith um Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I mean, you, you mentioned Susan Eastman, um, and you you actually um, edited a book with us at Cascade, um, which we mentioned briefly earlier. Practicing with Paul, um, you edited that in honor of her. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was for a, a birthday of hers or something, right? Yeah, her sixty fifth. Okay, her sixty fifth birthday. Okay, uh, and so in that book, you're kind of you and all the contributors are sort of exploring um, what. Uh, potential impact uh, sort of Pauline studies in the academy might have for the actual concrete life of the church and, and also mm-hmm. like individuals within the church. Mm-hmm. So what what would you say um, is kind of one major way uh, Pauline scholarship can contribute to the life of the church today? Mm-hmm. So um, this is like, a super generalized level. It doesn't really touch on any particular um, chapter of that book or contribution, but probably draws upon the various contributions. But basically, um, I think that Pauline scholarship can help us view Paul. Sorry, my dog wants to play. And so he's kind of growling at me. Go lie That's down. all good. <laughs> um, so it helps us to view Paul and his letters as as the truly complex and contextually situated documents that they are. Mm-hmm. And um, many scholars will tend to read Paul's letters in relation either to his Jewish tradition. And so, you know, reading scripture, reading Paul in relation to his scriptural heritage and his Jewish context or in relation to the um, more so-called secular, but not really secular, um, the imperial Greco-Roman context. Mm -hmm. But really both of these realities are critical for our greater understanding of Paul and his relationships and his written work. And so um, I think what Pauline scholarship can help us with is just getting at least a small amount of grasp on those two very deep, expansive fields of study, Jewish, the Jewish background of Paul and the Greco-Roman background. 
work contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to, you know, do all of that well, but as we rely on Pauline scholars to inform us about the most salient issues, um, we can we can come to understand the poignancy of Paul's letters much more fully, and um, and I I believe interpret them more more accurately. Um, as as we see them mm-hmm. situated, mm-hmm. Um, and the the challenge, of course, is that as we dig deeper, we find that that the issues are much more complex and often less certain than yeah. we'd like them to be. You know mm-hmm. our introductory texts sort of make it sound like everything's cut and dry and this is the way it is. And yet when we go below the surface, we find, oh, there's actually a lot of debate about this and uncertainty. And we're, we're just piecing probabilities together. And that can be really unsettling, but, uh, but maybe it teaches us something to, to hold, hold ourselves, um, hold our own convictions a little bit more loosely, maybe not convictions, but we maybe just gain a, a greater sense of humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, so, so I think the Pauline scholarship reveals a, a Paul who's very multifaceted and this can help us recognize our own complexities and the complexities of those that, may really irritate us and yeah. <laughs> we come into conflict and no. and that okay just as paul had these very conflictual relationships we too have them and um i think paul sometimes maybe wasn't as compassionate as he could have been but yeah. <laughs> you know we can we can always learn um, um and I think that Pauline scholarship can also teach us about how Paul um, Paul wrote to very particular congregations as they faced very particular struggles and had their own perspectives and pressures, and 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 that those those congregations had. a a different history with Paul than other congregations had with Paul. And so all of that information can just help us appreciate who Paul was as a, as a missionary, as a follower of Christ um, Mm -hmm. and the struggles he faced and the, um, the ways in which he communicated the gospel in ways that would, would be, um, particularly suited to each congregation and its needs. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I've been, uh, working my way very slowly through J. Lewis Martin's, uh, uh, commentary on Galatians. Mm -hmm. 
and that yeah that was one thing that was new to me is um i mean I, yeah i'm i'm sort of an infant in terms of uh my awareness of like the biblical studies i've read a lot more in theology and philosophy so it was it was new to me that um that there was a real conflict between or at least this is what martin argues that there was a real conflict between paul and then um kind of some some of the leaders of the jerusalem church yeah right yeah and so I, th I think that for me it was like oh that's kind of surprising um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but well, also but also it 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 um it was illuminating for me because i think it's really easy to hold on to this image of like the early church as being sort of like uh this like un like untarnished period mm -hmm. where the church was just what it was supposed to be like you see this with people sort of interpreting patris like the patristics like this but you also see it the people like really turning to the new testament church as the model for the church today right um, but i think that was like illuminating for me that oh like the conflict has always been a part yes. of the church from the very beginning yeah, it wasn't uniform. And and I think, you know, the Hebrew Bible holds really different, very divergent perspectives together. And it's one, one, you know, canon of books. And then the New Testament itself, it I, I, I think that it holds quite different perspectives all together. And, you know, you have a letter like James, and then you have Paul and I wouldn't say that these are, you know, diametrically op opposed, but they are speaking from different places and in some ways in some conflict. And yet mm -hmm. these are all held together in our one, you know, set of scriptures. And does that not teach us something about the breadth of God's kingdom? Yeah. or rain or yeah. family, however we want to describe yeah. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Okay. What's, what's kind of one thing you, you learned while you were editing this book? Cause you were a pretty young, like a younger academic while you were editing this collection. And then there's a lot of really heavy hitting scholars who contributed. So did you learn anything about like sort of the nature of academic relationships, academic community. Um, but also did you learn anything about Paul as you were editing this? Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, it was, it was a real privilege to, to get to undertake this project. And it was the idea of it came to me in something like, a, you know, maybe a God moment where um, I just had this overwhelming sense that I needed to pursue it and, um, just kept pushing for it, trying to find a publisher who would take it on because um, not many publishers are willing to do feshrifts. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it, it, it was it was an interesting thing to try to do at the time when I really probably should have been putting my energies towards revising and publishing my dissertation first. Right. But um I I don't always do the most practical things. I I go with my sure. <laughs> my ideal or whatever, and um, so I pursued it. But I think one of the things I learned through the process, uh, working with with academics who are very busy, um, is that they really appreciate and it's very effective to make 
make clear expectations and timelines early in the process and, you know, send reminders, um, provide timely feedback and clear communication. And at the same time, provide some wiggle room and grace as, as needed. Um, it, but I was amazed at how, how quickly folks got me their, their, um, chapters. And I mean, the, the whole process went very, very quickly and smoothly. Um, it was, Mm. it was really amazing. Um, the, the real blessing or benefit of the, of the project was that I was able to be, begin my own relationships with Susan's professional network, you know, that I rode on her coattails to, to make myself known to, yeah, some of the top Pauline scholars and theologians um, around. So um, yeah, that was just a real beautiful thing. And the greatest joy of the project was seeing Susan's deep appreciation for it. Um, Mm. And, and, um, and it seems as though the book has also been useful for some folks um, and using them uh, in classes and stuff like that. So I do do think that it has some, some really good entries and um, I like I like the idea of making biblical scholarship that much more accessible to practitioners, to people who are are going to inhabit the the fruits of academic labors. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It just sounds delightful, like getting to uh, sort of rub shoulders with all these people who are, you know, so so top mm-hmm. of their field um was it was there like a a birthday party or some kind of celebration where you like was this a surprise for susan or did she know <laughs> yeah. about it so un- so to make this happen i i early on actually asked her who are some of your po- closest colleagues and friends um and and so I basically told her that hey I'm gonna I'm gonna be trying to put this together. Um, yeah. So unfortunately, it wasn't a complete surprise. And right. then also, unfortunately, um, I didn't have the the money at the time to to like host a party for her yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. gathering, and um, so. We just the the contributors and Susan, we all just kind of gathered at the back of one of the sessions um, before a session began and hugged her and and yeah, so it was it was awesome. pretty basic, um, unfortunate in that way, but oh well. But I, I'm sure she understood. You were probably like a new, like fresh out of grad school, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure she understood, and I mean, it sounds like like you were saying that it meant a lot to her though. So, yeah. Okay. Let's turn to um, your new book on Romans, um, which you just, just published with Cascade uh, a few months ago, creation, slavery and liberation. Um, 
which yeah like i said i got to read a few chapters it was really really interesting stuff and one of the, one of the things you write in there um which i'm going to quote a couple sentences um you say in overlapping the scriptural and ecological lenses we are enabled to perceive a convergence of scripture's story of creation um, and science's story of earth they both reveal the importance of non-human vitality so you're kind of paralleling um scriptures uh story of creation and science's story of earth right so so what are the commonalities and kind of the differences between uh these two stories Mm -hmm. so um traditionally theology and biblical interpretation will tend to downplay the creative role that the earth seems to to play in the generation of life um but I think Genesis, Genesis 1 in particular, that creation account, clearly indicates that the earth does act as a creative agent. And um, that idea certainly aligns well with evolutionary science. The difference, uh, which is, of course, a huge difference, but the difference is that the Bible portrays God as initiating guiding and supporting earth's vitality and the generation of living things. Um, so that's at least a somewhat of a convergence though. The, the yeah. difference there is, is, is huge. Um, another convergence is something maybe related to some, to interdependence. Hmm. There's quite a number of biblical passages that indicate how human action affects the well-being of non-human creation and vice versa. So people can either promote Earth's fertility and vitality or degrade it. And mm. again, science confirms this in countless ways. Um, a fundamental difference between a scriptural story of creation and science's story is, is a matter of telos, the, the goal for science, there's no specific end towards which the earth and its inhabitants are spiraling. You know, according to, to many Christian interpreters, though, scripture tells us that God is directing creation towards peace and renewal and flourishing and justice, liberation, glorification, all of those um, lovely theological terms. So this difference of telos um, is is gigantic, but it's a a real gift, I think, in in many ways that Christians have received and then also can offer because it it gives us hope, a hope that God um, is is committed to the well-being and restoration of the earth, and that this commitment of God invites us to get on board to cultivate those same forms of well-being and restoration um, that God's moving all of creation towards. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. So then one of the kind of other things, like a, a, a next move you sort of make is putting these two stories in relationship to politics um, and sort of an argument you're making. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, is that, polities kind of also provide narratives that we live by 
-hmm. And so I know that this is a huge question I'm about to ask, um, but uh, <laughs> I'll just go for it anyways. Um, are you, are, in your view, like, are how how uh, does how do how do politics kind of figure in Paul's thought? Like, what is what's sort of the relationship between his gospel and um, specifically the political realities he and his um, congregations were living within? Mm-hmm. So, um, Paul Paul doesn't take on politics sort of explicitly and directly, or political entities specifically and directly. Um, at least those those political entities that are outside followers of Jesus. Um, these these political impulses show up very subtly, but I do think that uh, Paul did resist some of the political sensibilities and practices and the religious convictions that the empire uh, held forth. And this is because the empire is was wanting to inspire people to devote themselves and um, express faithfulness or fidelity to the emperor throughout the Mediterranean world and within its, its sphere of influence. And this, this desire to have people devote themselves to imperial ideology um, and practice came into conflict with Paul's view of how we should live our lives under the God of Israel and God's Messiah. So, as Paul's inspiring devotion and fidelity to Christ, he's at times um, guiding his his participants to stand at least in some conflict with the political powers. Um, though I think that that conflict was... It wasn't always really obvious because Christianity, you know, as it's developing during Paul's day, it isn't something separate from Judaism. At the time, followers of Jesus were within Judaism itself. In Judaism, Jews had this religious freedom under the Roman Empire. And so as long as the followers of Jesus were able to have the same sort of religious freedoms as their um Jewish brothers and sisters, they things were generally okay, though, you know, the Christians would be practicing forms of hospitality and truth-telling and things like that that would be um, maybe divergent from common practices among their peers, um, their non-Christian peers. But um so I think that there's there's a bit of conflict, but it's maybe not extreme conflict between Paul and the yeah. politics of the empire. Where I see a particular um, conflict that I've focused on is in Romans 8, 19 through 21, uh, where Paul, it seems to me, is undercutting an imperial narrative about nature or creation you know this bible would call it creation 
Roman ideology would call it nature, but um, mm -hmm. Paul, Paul is, is saying that creation is eagerly awaiting the apocalypse of the sons of God. And, you know, that God is, of course, the God of Israel. And this was in contrast to the imperial message that first Augustus and then later Nero, who were proclaimed to be sons of gods, had established the golden age of natural abundance. So Paul is instead saying, no, 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 creation is still suffering. It's subjected to frustration or futility. It's in bondage to decay, as the NRSV says, but I think the better translation is enslaved to destruction. Mm. Um, and in fact, it's waiting for the siblings of Jesus Christ, the resurrected people of God, to appear. That's when it will be liberated. So I think that there's a very subtle anti-imperial um, narrative going on there. But um, it's easy for us to miss it from yeah. this vantage point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting stuff. Okay, so then as we interpret it, as we interpret uh, Paul in today's context, right, as, as modern readers of Paul, are there resources he offers us um, as far as uh, the church's engagement with political realities that we're facing today or or even just, you know, individual Christians as we um, sort of face political realities? What, what kinds of resources, if any, does Paul offer us? Well, I'll, I'll limit my focus here again to more like creation sorts of things. But I think it's interesting that Paul draws upon his his um, observations of creation um, kind of takes takes creation as brings creation in as a witness as he's going through chapter eight to try to encourage those who are suffering for Christ to maintain their their faith and continue forward. He looks to to creation um, and its testimony. I think that's a beautiful example. And that he also very courageously spoke about the injustices and destruction he witnessed. Um, you know, not 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 as specifically as we would hope, you know, because gee, it would be nice to know exactly what was in his mind. But he he definitely is is telling us, hey, um, use your bodies as tools for justice rather than mm -hmm. injustice or wickedness um, in chapter six. And and thus, I think that Paul's form of discipleship was not merely spiritual, but really embodied and active, and that that discipleship inevitably met inevitably met with political conflict, and yet he courageously moved forward with that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, this gospel, I think, offers us um, hope and encourages us as we pursue justice and flourishing for our human neighbors as well as all creation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So then Paul, right. He's, he's a receiver or a reader of the Hebrew Bible and so much of his work, he's um, sort of interpreting the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and so in your, in your book, uh, creation, slavery, and liberation, you're, 
you're um, sort of ex- you're you're to some extent exploring kind of the you know what he receives from the Hebrew Bible in terms of uh, especially like God, the non-human world, and humanity, and then sort of the relationship between all three of these actors. So what 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 is kind of the theological heritage that he inherits and takes up from the Hebrew Bible? in regards to those things specifically. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of, of concepts here. I think Paul gleaned from the scriptures. Um, One is that creation is an agent and collaborator with God. Another is creation is a witness to God and therefore deserves our attention. Um, Creation is also a witness against humanity and its injustices sometimes called as a witness to to present its case to god um a third main idea is that creation is affected it's either positively or negatively affected by humans and paul likely believed that creation was subjected to frustration and enslaved to destruction at least in part because of human activity Uh, In Romans 5, he draws upon the Genesis 3 story as he talks about Adam and the entrance of sin and death into the world. And I think that that narrative would have just confirmed for him this idea that human action can have dire effects on creation. Um, and at the same time, as people experience God's liberation and glorification, glorification, the rest of creation might also experience at least some liberation from its slavery to destruction. That, that destructiveness of human action could be minimized or alleviated as people walk in the ways that God um, leads us to walk. So, um, so that's, that's one other point. The, the fourth main point is that the Messiah is really central to the liberation of creation. um, As, as Paul would have learned from the prophets, that's uh, the, not all the prophets center creation's renewal on a messianic figure. Um, sometimes it's it's um, God's people themselves, but the Messiah certainly for Paul was central. And that God's people then are called to walk alongside that Messiah to cooperate with God's work of liberation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just as kind of an aside, I'd be really curious what, I know you're a, a New Testament scholar, but what would be your reading of the, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the Genesis verbiage as far as kind of human humanity's uh, uh, like subduing mm-hmm. dominion. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, yeah. how would you sort of interpret that or what would kind of be a Pauline right. uh, reception of that? Right. So, um, I, I, you know, I definitely think that the wording has, has led to really 
very, very destructive forms of practice and theology um, and is not just like an innocent sort of text. But um, when it was written, it was likely written in a time of when, when Judea was conquered, the peoples were disempowered and humiliated. Mm-hmm. And I think that the forms of dominion and subduing that the Genesis 1 text expresses is um, it's humanizing for those people who are conquered and belittled and mm-hmm. yeah. and and just uh, and basically told you were created by the gods to serve the interests of the monarch and the priests and and that's all that you're good for um mm-hmm. so so i think that and then that doesn't that doesn't solve the entirety of the problem but um so i i the the easy quick answer is that i think that the dominion language we should interpret it as servant leadership mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we we have the ability to use our minds to think to plan ahead to create machines how are we doing this and are we doing mm-hmm. it in ways that cause destruction or are we doing it in ways that allow for what god created according to Genesis one could flourish. So when God says towards the end, of, or when, when that passage says towards the end of the, of chapter one, that God gives humans particular plants to eat and the animals of the field, uh, you know, the grasses to eat. Are we ensuring that all living things have access to the food that God has given them? in creation or are we actually undermining all of that diversity utility so um yeah so this is all very complex but uh i think important for us i I appreciate you bringing it up because it's very it's a very important powerful text that um has had a lasting influence in some pretty negative ways yeah i do think that's really uh, i've not heard that um perspective before but i i think it's really helpful um what you mentioned about uh sort of the ancient israelites being kind of a subjected people and that this being sort of a proclamation of their agency in regards to creation Mm -hmm. so i i I think i think that's kind of a really helpful key at least for Mm -hmm. me um okay so then uh you know during during paul's day living in the roman empire were there were there any sort of uh, major forms of ecological degradation um, kind of on behalf of the empire during his time? Or, and then also were there other, sort of other um, narratives that the empire was putting forth about sort of the mm-hmm. ecological world or agriculture that would have um, kind of really held, held sway in mm-hmm. um, Paul's social world? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the primary form of, and the most obvious form of ecological degradation that was taking place was deforestation. Um, the and and 
just to be um, clear that ancient peoples and the you know farmers and the people who were sort of the the landed gentry of the time who could write and were educated they they wrote about the the correlation between deforestation and erosion of soils so these people recognized these core correlations it's not just um it's just not it's not just a figment figment of our imagination that people could have and paul could have been aware of these things anyways so deforestation was huge and it was taking place at alarming rates around especially major cities because people needed huge amounts of of trees for fuel and lumber and the empire needed, um, of course, lots of lumber, but but specific kinds of lumber too. The old growth trees that were uh, real tall, so for their ship sails and for ports and all of those sorts of things. So, um, especially around Ephesus and Miletus, Paul and and then Syrian Antioch, Paul would have seen deforestation at work. Um, environmental historians have have documented the ways in which deforestation and its effects like erosion and siltation of rivers and waterways, um, all of this was intensified during the height of the, the early Roman Empire. So between the late first, sec- first century BCE to um, into the second century CE. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people of Rome themselves would have at least felt the effects of deforestation uh, through the flooding of the Tiber River, which um, oh, okay. was, was aggravated by the nude hills, hillsides yeah. upriver. Yeah. Um, and, and there's some very low lowland areas in the Rome, in in the city of Rome, where the poor people lived. And um, those, those places flooded, Uh, there, there were a number of pretty significant floods that happened during the first century in Mm -hmm. particular. And these are all very complex issues, and we have to hold them with some level of uncertainty. And I certainly don't claim that Paul recognized these forms of destruction in the same way as ecologists would today. But I also don't think he was oblivious um, because these these processes would have had direct effects on the farmers and the artisans and the the various people he would have been uh, ministering to. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Okay, so then, um, yeah, no, that's really interesting and helpful. Um, yeah, context to know. Um, so then, so then, in your book, you 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 outline uh, what you call eco-ethical principles that we as uh, contemporary believers can can draw from Paul's letters to the Romans. So what? What are some of those? I won't ask you to name all seven unless you really want to, which would be totally fine. But, um, what are some of these, some of those principles? Um, and then where, sort of where are you finding them in Paul, uh, in Paul's work? 
Mm-hmm. So I'll just raise up a couple. Um, the first is one I've already alluded to that that basically we should attend to creation story <clears throat> by recognizing the ways in which God's creation not only reveals the creator God, but also exposes its own condition on account of the complex interdependent relationships between and among non-human and human participants. And I find this principle um, sort of coming to the surface in Romans 1, but also in, in chapter 8, where Paul turns his attention to creation's condition, its longing, and its future in order to strengthen the hope of the people to whom he writes. Um, so, so that would be one Mm-hmm. One thing. And then principles, my what I call principles two and seven, I'm going to sort of smush them together. And they state that we should express gratitude to the great creator God for the gifts of creation, sharing the gifts of food and water with God's creatures. Mm-hmm. And then exercise appropriate self-restraint in order equitably to share the gifts of creation and support the vitality and fidelity of other members of God's creation. Hmm. And I think that, uh, and as a side note, these principles are also very much rooted in the, the Hebrew Bible and what I see as sort of core creational streams of thought in the Hebrew Bible wow. that Paul might have been picking up. Okay, so... Um, but but as far as in Paul's own letters, I think there's several passages that bring these sorts of concepts to us. Um, this idea, especially of sharing the gifts of creation with others. So, for example, in Romans 12, Paul exhorts followers of Christ to engage in liturgical service in which they would offer their living bodies as sacrificial gifts to God. And this service demands particular way of being, um, ways of being with others. Um, and these others might, e- might even be enemies or so-called enemies um, or those who would persecute them. And so for Paul, this the Christian love that the followers of Christ are to manifest um, leads them to extend hospitality to friends and strangers and also to share food and drink with enemies. So that's kind of huge. Yeah. Um, and then in chapter 14, pa- Paul tackles um, what was probably growing into a pretty volatile situation between and among the various congregations in Rome. So there were, there were different churches, different house churches in Rome and maybe um, some were upper class or more wealthy. Others were poor. Um, various mixtures of historically Jewish people, you know, people born into Judaism and those who were more um, pagan, Gentile birth. So there's lots of diversity within these congregations and between these congregations. Um, but fundamentally, he expects that when these diverse congregations come together for their mealtime worship services, those who are in power or feel empowered, what he calls the strong, they are probably people who 
have a sense of liberty, a liberty of conscience with regard to food rules or dietary regulations. Well, Paul calls them to adapt their eating habits so that the people who are disempowered or weak um, and, and have a stricter sense of conscience with regard to dietary regulation, that, so that they might participate fully without shame, without fear, or without argumentation. And um, I think a, a really poignant statement Paul makes is in 14 verse 15. And my translation of it is, do not by your eating destroy that one for whom Christ died. So if we were to take that sentiment seriously today, when so much of the food that we consume on a daily basis demands the degradation of soils, the degradation of ecosystems, the mistreatment of human beings, the mistreatment of animals. Um, to me, it becomes very clear that we're destroying those for whom Christ died by our eating. Yeah. And it maybe not is not their lives, but it's certainly their well-being, their flourishing, their health, you know, of millions of people and and of course millions of beings. Um, an additional sort of facet I take with this is that since, since in Romans eight, Paul, to me, makes it very clear that Christ's atoning work, his, his liberation leads, will lead to non-human creations liberation, mm -hmm. that Christ did not just die for humans, his death is liber liberatory for all of creation. It's, it's effective for all of creation. Thus, those for whom Christ died expands beyond the human species. Um, yeah. and that's, that's, you know, to, and putting this sort of into practice, of course, um, brings all kinds of questions, difficult questions into, um, into view of like, okay, well, can we, can we kill an animal for, and, and eat it? Um, right. But no matter what, our eating will demand the, the death of something, whether it's insects mm -hmm. or, or whatever. I mean, it does mm -hmm. involve death. But does it need to involve the destruction that, that is happening at um, extraordinary rates around the world because yeah. of industrial agriculture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, and you're already you're already um, moving well into uh, something that you get into in your book as well, which is uh, sort of applying Paul to the food system today, industrial agriculture, especially in America. Um, and I think, yeah, so that, that's something for myself, too, that it, it just seems like such a complex uh, issue. Like, there's just so many layers of complicity there, especially with 
the food system in in America. Um, but to yeah, to sort of like try to disentangle yourself feels like a complex endeavor and one that requires mm-hmm. like a lot of resistance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what, but but what would you say? Uh, what would you say? I mean, in terms of Paul, but also just in general as Christians is sort of our responsibility um in in our relationships with food uh how can how can we sort of participate in in foods in our food system in a way that's sort of more uh life-giving i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well um so you know I, i'm gonna kind of speak in broad terms here but Generally, uh, industrial agriculture causes unnecessary amounts of destruction to Earth's creatures, the waters, air, soils, and ecosystems. But that doesn't mean that industrial agriculture intends to do this or that it's set out to cause this destruction. Because, in fact, what it wants to do is feed millions of people, billions of people, inexpensively, safely, and accessibly. But but when we look at it um, truthfully and honestly, we find that it fails in each of these points. Um, one aspect of the you know one reason for this is that it's heavily reliant on fossil fuels for tractor power and transportation, but also for fueling the production of synthetic fertilizers. It takes a lot of energy to change, um, to uh, reconfigure nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen into usable nitrogen, um, nitrogenous uh, chemicals So for, for fertilizer, you know, right. th- fertilizers that we can spray onto our lands. And, and so this industrial agriculture as this sector of society is a significant contributor to global warming. Mm-hmm. So as we tackle, you know, and, and improve the ways in which we feed ourselves, we are participating in, in helping reduce global warming, hopefully, you know, if we do it well. Um, and so that, so in, in addition to the, the whole fossil fuel global warming piece is that the fertilizers and pesticides we use actually diminish the health and vitality of the soils, um, which can be pretty surprising to us because we think, well, this is doing the soils good, but it actually diminishes the soils um, the soil ecosystem's ability, inherent ability to maintain fert- fertility over the long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, a byproduct of the fertilizers and pesticides is, you know, pollution of water and air and um, the killing of unintended insects and birds and so on. Sure. Now, the positive thing is that researchers have found that it's, um, so when, when they compare a, a huge expansive field or, or an area of, of land that is uh, farmed as a monocrop, 
and compare that to a polyculture that's um, more intensively and regeneratively farmed, the polyculture is actually more productive. It yields more food than the monocrop. Hmm. So when people say, well, we can't feed the world apart from industrial agriculture, that's not really true, though it will require some major changes um, for us to feed ourselves in regenerative ways. Um, It will take more human labor in, in many respects and a major change in governmental policies and the ways in which it provides um, subsidies and support, financial support mm-hmm. to the monocrop commodity um, crop sales, you know, uh, types of crops. So the whole system really needs revamping, but there is definitely hope and and positive options. And I generally name these regenerative forms of agriculture. Uh, so I think that Paul's letter and the the sort of Christian principles that we glean from it should motivate us towards the you know towards taking taking a concern for the mundane issues of how we feed ourselves and yeah. how we care for the land, and that we work towards justice and um something maybe we could call lifefulness. Uh, I often use the word zoopoiesis in, in the book coming from the word in, in Romans 8, 11, where the spirit makes alive um, mm-hmm. that we're, we're participating in God's work of making creation alive or, or supporting its lifefulness, its vitality. Mm. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Okay. Well, I want to I want to honor your time, so I'll just give you one more question, and then I can sure, let you go. You. But but yeah, but yeah, kind of as follow up to that one, and, and sort of zooming in on on the micro scale, are there are there things just sort of in our own personal lives that we can we can mm. do or that we can refrain from um, that mm. would sort of put us in. I don't know, kind of a more like Eucharistic, more, more uh, grateful, more priestly uh, relationship with mm-hmm. the food that we consume. Um, yeah. Are there, are there sort of practical things that we can do or refrain from? Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the things. Uh, one could figure out a way to compost your, your, you know, scraps of food or the, the peels of food and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. and I have, I have found that I I was always a little bit nervous about getting red wiggler worms and having compost in my house. But, um, I, I happen to have this storage area down beside our garage. So it's not in our living area, um, and it's, you know, it's, um, it stays relatively cool in the summer and warm in the winter. So it's, it works well for the the worms, but I, I mean, it's been super simple. I've been yeah. Yeah. amazed at how simple it is. 
But anyways, um, so, you know, just thinking about how could our food waste get, get put back into the soil, you know, yeah. as food, because that's the natural cycle, um, rather than interrupting that cycle by sending things to the landfill. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, so much food, I mean, food prices are, are, you know, just skyrocketing, mm -hmm. but there are ways in which one can procure sort of more organic or regeneratively grown foods at, at least a little bit more economical prices than the typical mm -hmm. grocery store will sell them yeah. Yeah. through food co-ops. Um, sometimes. I've found places that that sell more like bulk foods. Like if, if somebody's in more of a Mennonite or Amish area, mm, okay. sometimes those folks can have access to organically grown oats, for example, mm. uh, or bread flowers that you can buy at a price that's much less expensive than um, Bob's Bob's Red Mill or whatever it's called, sure, brand. Sure. It, yeah. yeah, you know, that's so, so expensive. Yeah. Um, and then along with that, trying to eat more beans, you know, like kidney beans, black beans, rather than so much reliance on meat. Um, just, you know, sure. those small ways. Though, to be honest, I get easily discouraged and overwhelmed and think I'm not doing enough never doing enough and um and yet implementing small changes over you know over a period of time it it makes a difference um and yeah. then of course, any advocacy that we can do to make large level differences in governmental policies um yeah can be huge yeah for sure no yeah for sure i think um I think, yeah, it can be overwhelming and feel, it can feel like at times like, you know, is, is this really making a difference? But I think there's also the aspect of the conversion mm -hmm. it makes upon you, like as you're, as mm -hmm. you're, like the ways that it changes you um, mm -hmm. and you're, you know, in the way you're, uh, I don't know, relating creation to God um, in sort of a more, uh, I don't know gentle and, and life-giving way as we've talked about mm -hmm. okay well i i will let you go but i do want to say thank you very much for um chatting and it's mm -hmm. been a joy uh, meeting you and getting the chance to um, talk with you so thank you thank you very much oh you're welcome thank it's been a, a true true pleasure um and i look forward to um getting to talk about this with other people who might be interested in, in um, talking more. So if, if folks ever want to um, get in contact with me, they can, they can find me at pressionburrows.com, my, my um, WordPress site. But um, I, I, I love creation. I love scripture and I uh, enjoy talking about these topics. So thank you for inviting me.